0: A reading from the second book of Samuel. When the wife of Uriah heard that her husband was dead, she made lamentation for him. When the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. He brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his his meager fare and drink from his cup and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, And he was loath to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared that for the guest who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, "'As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. "'He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity.'" Nathan said to David, you are the man, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I rescued you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your bosom, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judea, and if that had been too little, I would have added as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, for you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said to David, Now the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child that is born to you shall die. And Nathan went to his house. The Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became very ill. The word of the Lord.
1: The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And a woman in the city, who was a sinner, having learned that he was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping and began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. Then she continued, kissing his feet and anointing them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. Jesus spoke up and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, he replied, speak. A certain creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, Oh, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And Jesus said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil. But she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love, but the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Soon afterwards, he went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him. As well as some women who had been cured of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward Chusa, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their resources. The Gospel of the Lord.
2: Blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Amen. Well, happy Father's Day! Here we are, Father's Day. I I learned uh, in a little. Thank God for Wikipedia. Uh, I learned that uh, Father's Day began in the early 1900s. Uh, and was founded as a response to the beginning of Mother's Day. And uh, Mother's Day had started, and a woman who she and her siblings had been raised by a single father felt that there should be a Father's Day as well. So that was part of uh, the founding of uh, Father's Day. Although I have to say it is, it is certainly... Um, It does not uh, rise to the level of religious obligation and holy day that Mother's Day does. (laughs) Mother's Day, attendance is always huge and lots of people come to church and it's it's a religious holiday in a sense. Father's Day is like that day where, you know, all the dads who don't want to go to church anyway get to say, yeah, I'm taking the day off. So today we gather and we honor uh, all of those who are fathers, whether they are uh, biological fathers or if they are functionally fathers, stepfathers, foster fathers, adoptive fathers, father figures. We give thanks for all those who are fathers. And while Mother's Day is, seems to work so well in the church, I've always have struggled a little bit with Father's Day. It just feels a little awkward in church. And I think part of that is because of the many ways that we use and encounter the word Father in church referring to God. We often say God the Father or the God of our fathers. In scripture we hear that a lot, the God of our fathers the God of Abraham and Isaac. He he calls. (laughs) What a responsive father we have. When we talk about God the Father, it is the role of father that is being applied to God. It is the role. When we say God the Father, it is God taking on that role of fatherhood. And it is to be understood in a relational way, especially in the biblical world. Identity was much more bound up in the group. In our society today, we have a much more individualistic notion of who someone is and of their identity. But when they talk about God the Father, they're talking about how that role is played out within the community. So the God of our fathers is the God of the covenant. It is God the liberator who led the people out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. It is the Father who rescued. It is a relational role. The other thing that's very important to understand for all of us is especially in the early church, we've lost some of this, but in the early church, The use of God the Father was a metaphor. Even in Scripture, we see images of God as a mother. So when we say God the Father, we are using a metaphor to describe a role of God or the way that God functions. We also encounter biblical figures as fathers in the sense of being the father of a nation, like Abraham, the father of a nation. A perfect modern example of this, uh, especially because he's been in the news a lot, is Nelson Mandela, who um, you may have seen in the news has been hospitalized for about a week now and has been quite ill and is recovering. But even in the newspapers in South Africa, he'll be referred to as Tata Mandala, which is his nickname, which means, in his language, Father. Father Mandala. He's referred to as the Father of the nation. And of course, pretty much every Sunday at St. John's, you're going to run into at least one Father. Father Chris, Father Skip, Father Chuck. The term Father is used for clergy. Now, originally, the term father was only used for bishops and was done to signify their teaching authority over the faithful. And it's kind of waxed and waned in usage, and it's really only over the last hundred years, maybe, that father has become, again, to be more used generally to describe all priests. Even in the Episcopal tradition... It would have been commonplace at one time in our history for me to be referred to as Mr. Rankin-Williams, not Father. In many ways, it's sort of an honorific. And at times, Father was only used as, a, as an honorific for older, more wise, experienced clergy. But now it's become more generally used, so Father Chris... But it's really very, very important that we not confuse or conflate because we experience them at the same time in church, that we not confuse or conflate the title of father for the priest with the title of God the Father. Uh, Many years ago, when I had first started at St. John's, I was grocery shopping and I saw a child start to come down the aisle, look at me, freeze, turn and run the other way around to the other aisle. I was like, okay. A little while after that, a woman came around into the aisle who was a parishioner at St. John's and came up to me and said, oh, it's you. My daughter just ran up to me and said, mommy, God is in the other aisle. No. (laughs) God is in all the aisles, right? But not just in the person of me. So, now as on this Father's Day and these various multiple images of Father we have, I think it's important for us to acknowledge the reality that in biblical times and throughout much of the church's history, every day, was Father's Day. Culturally and socially and politically, every day was Father's Day. And it is important for us as we gather this Sunday morning in church to acknowledge the impact and the legacy of patriarchy. How many of you were taught that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute? I was taught that. Our gospel passage this morning is the origin of that teaching. It is the origin of the teaching. Towards the end of the passage, there's this thing about, you know, then Jesus traveled with these women and Mary Magdalene was one of them. Interpreters of this passage said that here is a woman who is sinful and socially known as being sinful. And they made that sin a sexual sin of prostitution, and they tied it to Mary Magdalene. And part of what that does is undermine her role in the resurrection account that comes later in the Gospel of Luke. Mary Magdalene is the first woman named in the Gospel when the resurrection is revealed to the women. So, in, in Luke's gospel, Mary, in some sense, or in a very real sense, is the first apostle of the resurrection. But she is cast by male authorities in the church as a prostitute, which undermines that role. And so many of us grew up being told that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. There is nothing in this passage to support the notion that one, The sins of this woman were sexual sins. They were some sort of sin that was known socially. But there's nothing to support that it was prostitution or sexual in nature. And there is no evidence that the woman in question was Mary Magdalene. That's made up. It's made up. It's used to manipulate the gospel for purposes of abuse of power. The themes in our readings today and in this season are ones of reconciliation and forgiveness. Reconciliation and forgiveness. The reading from Second Samuel, which is quite stark, is really a cautionary tale about the abuse of power. Normally, David, such an esteemed figure, you would not include a story that is so negative about such an esteemed figure in the Bible. Why wouldn't you just leave that out, right? Why, why trash David? It's a cautionary tale about the abuse of power. And in this gospel passage of the woman and the Pharisee, we hear a message that shame and guilt do not lead to life the woman's sense of shame and guilt, the shame and guilt that the Pharisee wants to keep putting on her, and Jesus' message of reconciliation and forgiveness is that shame and guilt does not lead to life. I was really struck by this because I was recently reading um, an article that was interviewing Madeline Levine, who's a Marin-based therapist who's written extensively on parenting. And one of her admonitions was do not use shame and guilt in parenting. And I read that and I started to think, and I thought, wow, I do that a lot more than I probably think I do or want to admit. And this theme of reconciliation and forgiveness seems particularly appropriate to me on Father's Day. The theme of reconciliation and forgiveness is a factor in almost every single father-son relationship that I hear about, including my own. Reconciliation and forgiveness is an important part of father-son relationships. And it is a classic, classic theme in literature and in film. There are countless stories of this kind of forgiveness and reconciliation between a father and a son. One of the most powerful examples of this is a film called Smoke Signals by Sherman Alexie. And part of it is about uh, life on the Coeur d'Alene Indian Reservation and the relationship between this main character and his father who has died and he travels to get his father's body and ashes and return to the reservation with them. And at the end of the film, as he is pouring his father's ashes off a bridge into this river that's a significant part of the Coeur d'Alene Indian uh, reservation or or in their history, which is, this is at the end of the movie and if you haven't seen it, rent it. A poem is read called, How Do We Forgive Our Fathers? How do we forgive our fathers? Maybe in a dream. Do we forgive our fathers for leaving us too often or forever when we were little? Maybe for scaring us with unexpected rage. Or making us nervous because there never seemed to be any rage there at all? Do we forgive our fathers for marrying or not marrying our mothers? For divorcing or not divorcing our mothers? And shall we forgive them for their excesses of warmth or coldness? Shall we forgive them for pushing or leaning For shutting doors, for speaking through walls, or never speaking, or never being silent? Do we forgive our fathers in our age, or in theirs, or their deaths, saying it to them, or not saying it? If we forgive our fathers, what is left? If we forgive our fathers, what is left? Today's gospel is about not clinging to resentments and judgment, but embracing forgiveness. On this Father's Day, do you need to forgive your father or your priests? or God the Father? Do you need to hear Jesus say to you, your sins are forgiven? Many years ago, an older friend said to me that things he didn't even remember saying to his children, they have carried with them as wounds. Do the work of reconciliation, forgive and be forgiven.